Wednesday nights, awesome time too. So good to see everybody. It's so good to be together. I like that sign. Yeah. Well, we're in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, spiritual warfare. We're starting a whole new division in this uh, book of Paul's letter. The first division, could, we could probably call it Christian living. Then the next division covered all at one time Christian giving. Good job. Amazing, by the way. And then this division starts something brand new, Christian fighting. What? Christian fighting. Well, defending the faith. Fighting for the faith. And uh, remember as we started this uh, book, these two books, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 11, there's problems. Chloe's household said, uh, Pastor Paul, there's contentions, there's problems, there's all these things going on. We need your help. Now, the majority of the church responded to Paul's uh, authority and responded to his teaching and his words. There was still a minority who were probably carried away by false teachers, by the Judaizers. And they opposed Paul. The Judaizers, especially the false teachers, they just rejected Paul's teaching. They really didn't want to have anything to do with Paul. Starting in this chapter, Paul's addressing the few who stubbornly are fighting him, the false teachers, and they're criticizing him in every which way, shape, or form. It's like moving into this part of the book where we're going from you know, Christian living and Christian giving and bright sunshine and cloudy, you know, puffy, beautiful clouds and just a nice breeze. And all of a sudden there's a storm coming in. And, and Paul's rolling up his sleeves and there's lightning and thunder and the winds are, are blowing pretty hard. But Paul's heart, he has a passion for the truth of the gospel and the truth of the cross, and the love of Jesus Christ, and that Jesus is our all in all. And he's not going to let anybody take that away from these Corinthian believers. So, get ready to rumble. Here we go. Okay? So, if we're going to rumble, and Paul's going on the attack, then this first verse is really interesting. But we'll kind of get back to it. But now I, Paul, myself am pleading with you by the meekness and the gentleness of Christ. Believe it or not, he's he's fighting. He's rumbling. He's after him with the meekness and gentleness of Christ. who in, And now he's beginning to talk about what they're talking about him, what they're saying about him. Who in presence am lowly among you, but being absent, I'm bold according to you. So, so they're after him. They, yeah, he's no big deal. If he were here, he's nothing. 
He can talk big in his letters, but he's really nothing. Remember, Paul had written a strong letter, and he had sent Titus and a few in Corinth. Uh, they were still being pushed along by the false teachers, by the Judaizers, and they were, boy, they were criticizing him and talking behind his back. And they were saying, Paul writes big, but in person he's just not impressive at all. He's nothing to look at, nothing to listen to. He has no authority. Paul's pleading with them with the meekness and gentleman, gentleness of Christ. Well, that didn't impress these guys at all. So he came to Corinth. Remember, he was a humble tent maker. And he worked in the marketplace all day. He had sweatbands on. He had dirty hands. He, he uh, just like a common laborer. And the false teachers would talk behind his back. And one of the things they'd say is, hey, he's not a real apostle. He's a tent maker. He's a nobody. He's just an ordinary laborer. A real apostle would be so much more impressive to look at and to see. And a real apostle would have enough faith to trust the Lord to take care of his needs. He must not have any faith. Well, Paul's reply to the mocking of his authority, we begin to see <clears throat> kind of what they were saying about him in, and we discover the lies about him. Number one, he lacked credentials from the Jerusalem church. His motives were insincere. insincere. They were saying, He's probably just out there making tents to make you feel sorry for him, so you'll give. He's after your money. Was that true about Paul in any way, shape, or form? No. Uh, his physical appearance, so he's just lowly and weak. Letters are bold, but huh, he's not going to back them up. And you can't believe what he tells you. He's not a man of his word. So that's just to name a few. Here goes Paul, verse 2. But he says, I beg you that when I'm present, that I may not be bold with that confidence by which I intend to be bold against some. In other words, he's saying, I don't really want to come with a rod. That's not what I want. Some who think of us as if we walked according to the flesh. They're only looking at the outward appearance. They're not looking on this apostle's heart or work or words at all. And Paul is saying to them they shouldn't think of him just as an ordinary man with no spiritual authority just because he makes tents and his hands get dirty and he gets sweaty and... But this is the way they evaluated him. He's just, a, he's just an ordinary guy, a Hawaiian shirt kind of guy. No tie. Okay? Verse 3. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war <laughs> according to the flesh. Now Paul's getting there. He's saying, we may not look like much, but hang on to your hat. 
it's time to rumble. We don't look like much to the religious mucky mucks and leaders or the world, the formal credentials or letters, the big boys in Jerusalem hand out, no degree, no PhD from you know, Jerusalem University. We don't come with flashy rhetorical polish. Paul's saying we're not about impressing the world or doing ministry the way that the world does its thing. Remember when Paul came? Remember what he said? 1 Corinthians chapter 2. I'm reading this from the New Living Translation. When I first came to you, I didn't use lofty words and impressive wisdom. I decided that while I was with you, I would forget everything. All the things of the world, the way the world does things. I'd forget everything except the most important thing. And that is Jesus. The one who was crucified. I came to you in weakness, timid and and trembling according to the way you looked at me. My message and my preaching were very plain, just right down to earth, so you could understand every word, because I wanted you to know about Jesus and who he was and how much he loves you and what he's done for you. Rather than using clever, persuasive speeches, I relied only, uh, and you got to, this is a bit humorous, I only relied on the power of the Holy Spirit. (laughs) Hello, what else do we have if we don't have the power of the Holy Spirit? I did this so that you would not trust in human wisdom or human ways, but you would trust in the God who loved you and gave his son for you, and you would fall in love with Jesus. For, verse, verse 4, for the weapons of our warfare, our Christian fighting, they're not carnal, they're not of this world, but they're mighty in God, for pulling down strongholds. Now, Paul doesn't list the weapons here. Spiritual warfare that Paul's talking about means that there's a spiritual enemy. Is there a spiritual enemy? Oh, yeah. And if there's a spiritual enemy, it's going to require spiritual weapons to take that guy out. Paul's weapons are mighty. They're effective They're spiritual weapons. They're to take down Satan's stronghold in people's lives and in ministries that Satan's trying to to deceive or send down a path that all they do is spin their wheels and never do anything for Christ. They're not listed, but this passage as we go through it gives some clues, and one clue that we've already had, and I've already touched on that. And I honestly, with all my heart, I think it's the most powerful weapon, spiritual weapon that Paul had and that any Christian or father or mother or businessman that knows the Lord, servant of the Lord, the most awesome weapon that we can possibly have, what is that? The first spiritual weapon I believe it's the most important to be filled to overflowing with the 
love and life and person of Jesus Christ. You've got to love Paul. He says, know this about me. It's Christ in me and it's his power in me. I may not look like much, but Jesus is filling my heart and my life. Meekness for both Paul and Jesus. Meekness did not mean weakness. Okay? Someone has defined meekness as power under complete control. That was Jesus. That was Jesus in Paul. And because Jesus is in Paul and overflowing, that was Paul. The greatest display of Jesus' meekness and gentleness, I believe that it, we saw that greatest display begin to be shown on the Mount of Gethsemane when he was in the garden headed to the cross. Oh, my Father, he prayed for the third time, if this cup cannot pass from me unless I drink it, your will be done, not mine. Meekness, gentleness. Judas arrives, gives the kiss. He has a band of, of rowdy soldiers and spears and swords and a ruckus. And Peter pulls out his sword and He's going to fight the way of the world and he swings and he cuts off the servant's ear and, and Jesus just says, put it away. And he just simply, humbly reaches out, picks up the ear and he heals the guy right there. And then he turns to his disciples and he says, don't you understand? I could call my father, and immediately he would send 12 legions of angels. But that's not why I'm here. I'm headed to the cross. All the disciples took off. They left him at that point. They led Jesus away for the trials and then to the cross. And on the cross was where we see the ultimate display of the meekness and the humility of our Lord Jesus Christ. Through his meekness and humility, what did he do? Colossians 2.15. This is, this is the most powerful spiritual weapon that's ever been displayed in time and history. Jesus disarmed principalities and powers. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them on the cross. The awesome power of our Savior under perfect control on the cross of Christ because of His love for you and me. And that's where Satan was crushed, defeated, humiliated, And Paul was full of that kind of power. The power of Jesus Christ. You can't come up against that and win. Huh. Secondly, 
Paul's next spiritual weapon in his arsenal? I believe it's the Word of God. Uh, like Paul, we need to have confidence in the Word. It's the sword of the Spirit. And when he came to Corinth, we read in Ephesians, he says we take the helmet, the helmet of salvation, we belong to the Lord, but then we grab a hold of the Spirit, which is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Paul drew his trusty sword. He depended upon the power that it wielded. Someone has said that God's Word is like a caged lion. You don't have to... Uh, you don't have to defend it. All you have to do is open the cage. <laughs> the line will take care of itself. Paul wrote, I'm not ashamed of the word of the gospel of Christ. Why, it's the power of God and the salvation to everyone who believes. It will change their lives completely. Jew first, then to the Greek. We need to have that same confidence in God's Word, as we're dealing with people that we love, as we're dealing with people that we're wrestling with, or whatever it might be, just to, as God's Spirit brings to mind different verses to share, and, and, and just to say, well, the Bible says that, that Jesus loves you just like you are. In fact, you're still a sinner. I was a sinner. Christ died for you, right? On the cross, just like you are. And oh, how he loves you. And we just keep sharing the truth of the word. I love Billy Graham and the way that he would always say time and time again, the Bible says, the Bible says. We need to have a firm confidence in the inspiration of God's Word. I believe the Bible from cover to cover. Hebrews 4.12 The Word of God is alive and powerful, is sharper than any two-edged sword. It cuts between soul and spirit, gets right down where you live, where I live. Between joint and marrow, it exposes our innermost thoughts and desires, gets right down to the heart of things. And oh, isn't that what we need? And, and then in that Hebrews chapter, once we realize I need the Lord, then the Lord says we'll come boldly into the throne of grace and find the help that you need. So we come just as we are because we've read the word and the word challenges us and we come to Jesus and we get the help that we need. The final spiritual weapon, number three, Paul believed in the power of prayer. Ephesians chapter 6, reading from the NIV. Pray in the Spirit on all occasions and all kinds of prayers and requests and all means. Yeah. Just take everything to the Lord who loves you. With this in mind, be alert. Oh, and by the way, keep on praying. <laughs> for all the saints. Pray for me. Whenever I open my mouth, 
the words may be given to me by the power of the Spirit. Jesus' heart. I want his heart. I want what Jesus wants to say to these people that he gave his life for. That I will be fearlessly able to make known the mystery of his love, the gospel. The result of Paul's spiritual weapons, look at verse 5. This is the result. Casting down arguments. That's what he's doing. They're, <clears throat> they're arguing against Paul. He's casting him down with these spiritual weapons. And every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, that'd be Satan and all the principalities and demons and all that's going on around him. Bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Changing hearts and lives to want to be like Jesus, who said, not my will, but your will be done. Spiritual battle, it'll successful because it's already been won on the cross of Christ. Defeating Satan, he has no foothold in our lives anymore. Anyone who belongs to Jesus, our sins are forgiven. There's now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The battle is won. When Jesus said it is finished, it's finished. He's done everything that we need to be completely redeemed for eternity on the cross. And Paul could confidently say, you take up these spiritual weapons and you're going to find victory in Christ every time. Someone might ask, well, if Satan knows he's already defeated, why does he keep on fighting and causing problems? I love John Corson. He answers this. He says, yeah, Satan knows he doesn't have a chance. He knows that the one grasp that he had on mankind, on man is gone. <clears throat> he knows his time is running out, yet he hates God so much. He's going to continue to hang on to the territory he knows is no longer his, but he's going to hang on with everything he can. He's going to fight to the bitter end. And John goes on and says, although the war goes on, we do not fight for victory. We fight from victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. He's given us the victory. That's why Paul tells us, take, take Jesus, take the Word, take your love for Him, and just tear down Satan's strongholds. Root out. Take control. Our adversary, he's erected in our minds, our hearts, in our ministries, wherever it might be. Christ has made it possible for us to use these spiritual weapons to, to, to tell Satan, take a hike. Get out of here. Resist him, what's he going to do? He's got no choice. He's got to take off. Being ready, Paul says, I'm being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. Paul says, know this. Though there's a fight going on, I'm going to keep fighting Satan and his cronies until 
you Corinthians grow into the fullness and love of Jesus Christ. Now that's a pastor's heart. That's what I'm about. And there's nothing in this world that's going to stop me. Yeah, Paul's meek and gentle, but he's definitely not weak, is he? No. Verse 7. Do you look at things according to the outward appearance? If anyone is convinced in himself that he's Christ, let him again consider this in himself, that just as he is Christ's, we so are Christ's. So, these false apostles, they're saying they belong to Christ. But Paul here is saying, we're the real deal. <laughs> we are Christ. They're backing Paul into a corner here. They're coming at him. He's making his stand. It's not so much for himself, but it's for Jesus and for Jesus' kids, his church. Paul will be pushed no further. Here he goes. Verse 8. For even if I should boast somewhat more about our authority that we have from Jesus himself, the idea is, which the Lord gave us for building up, for edification, and not for destruction. We're not here to tear anyone down. We want to build everyone up to love Jesus. I'm not going to be ashamed. Lest I seem to terrify you by letters. Now he's starting to quote his critics. For his letters, they say, they're weighty and powerful, but when he shows up, his bodily presence is weak. His speech... Worst speech I've ever heard. Contemptible. The false teachers keep mocking. Paul's all talk. He doesn't have what it takes to follow through to really be what he claims to be an apostle. He's just a pathetic little fellow. David Guzik uh, shares this as he did some research and this is what he came up with. By outward appearance, Paul was weak and unimpressive. This is a description of Paul from an early Christian writing, perhaps from about 200 A.D. A man of small stature with a bald head and crooked legs with eyebrows meeting and nose somewhat crooked. Oh, he's just a pathetic little fellow. Huh. Paul goes on. Huh. Verse 11. Let such a person consider this. That what we are in what we are in word by letters when we're absent we shall also be in deed when we're present. Paul's saying it's not a threat. That's a promise. I'm coming. When Paul arrives, they'll see just how bold he can be. And after his personal appearance with them, they'll wish that he'd just sent a letter. Verse 12, For we dare not 
class ourselves or compare ourselves with those who commend themselves. He's coming after those false teachers who are always talking about each other and how wonderful and powerful speakers and wonderful leaders that they are. But they measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves, Paul says, not wise. That's just not wise. These false teachers, they're comparing themselves with one another. <clears throat> they're talking about each other. Why? We're the top ten TV preachers of our day. And Paul, huh, you'll be lucky to even find him on YouTube. Under the inspiration of the Spirit, Paul is saying, that is not the way. You don't compare yourself with another. Why? Because <clears throat> you can always find someone who seemingly is less spiritual than you are. And when you do, aren't I really something? And you get all puffed up with pride. Paul says, not wise. Not, not the Lord's way. Verse 13. We, however, will not boast beyond measure. We're not going to boast about ourselves. It's everything that means something to us is the leading of the Lord Jesus Christ within the limits of the sphere which God, which Jesus appointed us. A sphere which especially includes you. Paul's literally saying there, there was a divine appointment as we followed Christ he led us to you and he prepared your hearts to receive the message that he, of love that he had given for us to share with you. For we are not overextending ourselves as though our authority did not extend to you. For it was to you that we were led by Christ, that we came with the gospel of Christ, we're the ones, Christ working with us, we were able to share his love with you. And he was right in the middle of everything that was going on. That's what I love about divine appointments. Do you pray for divine appointments? They're there. Especially if you'd like to be part of one and be there to minister to someone in Jesus' name. And he's not boasting of things beyond measure. It's all about Jesus and Jesus in Paul's life and Jesus leading. That is in other men's labors. So he's now he's starting to poke at these false teachers. But having hope that as your faith is increased, we shall be greatly enlarged by you in our sphere. In other words, as... <clears throat> as you begin to fall in love with Jesus and you get on board with the work that Christ is doing in Paul and those that are working with him, you're going to say, Paul, we want to be a part of sending you on to do even more, to touch other people's lives, to preach the gospel, verse 16, in regions beyond you, Corinthians, and not to boast in another man's fear of accomplishment. So what's happening here? The false teachers, the Judaizers, they come to Corinth. 
because God has so powerfully touched so many lives. And Paul has brought so many to Jesus. And now Paul leaves. Paul has pioneered this unreached area. But as soon as he's gone, these false teachers swoop in, the Judaizers, and they try to take over these new Christians and this new fellowship. That's how cults work it. They prey on new Christians. They try to get them before they're really grounded in the word, before they know that they're being deceived. It's a strategy that Satan still employs to this very day. Well, now we see Paul's final thrust of the, of the sword of the word. Verse 17 and 18. But here's the bottom line. And he's talking to these false teachers. But he who glories, don't glory in yourself or who you think you are. You glory in the Lord. <clears throat> For not he who commends himself is approved, but whom the Lord commends. These Judaizers were part of a mutual admiration society. And Paul is, take with the word of God, he's just striking right at the heart of the issue of their boasting and their pride with the power of God's word. It's like an arrow piercing their puffed up hearts. Jeremiah 9 talks about that. Jeremiah 9.23 Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man glory in wisdom, let not the mighty man glory in his might. Let not the rich man glory in his riches. But let him who glories in this, that he understands and knows me. That's life and life eternal. I'm the Lord, exercising loving kindness, judgment, righteousness in the earth. For these, in these I delight, says the Lord. And Paul, Paul says, that's the bottom line of God's word. Whom the Lord commends is the most important. There will be a day when they, when Paul and each one of us stands before the Lord. Oh, how we long to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Well done. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Well done. Jesus' commendation is all that really matters. Amen? Amen. So, Corinthians, Paul's giving you these, these spiritual principles to and how to decide what's right and wrong, what's good and bad, which is what's from the Lord, which is from the the ways that the world does things. So pay attention. Carefully inspect the fruit of these guys' lives that are trying to deceive you, just like Jesus told us to do. Beware of false prophets, Matthew 7, who come disguised as harmless sheep but are really vicious wolves. You can identify them by their fruit. Pride, the arrogance. Paul's fighting, not for his, but the spiritual well-being 
of all of these precious believers. And he's just begin, begun to fight. It's going to be good. You're going to want to come back. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for Paul. Meek, humble, just so full of you, Lord Jesus. That's my heart's desire. That's our heart's desire. And then to know your word and just to be able to share your word to, to, that the Holy Spirit would just bring the right words to mind as we're loving people and encouraging them and trying to help them. And then to be praying. Maybe have a, <coughs> a top ten prayer list that, to pray for ten people that you know don't know the Lord yet and just start praying. Praying for our pastors, praying for our leaders, our elders, praying for one another. Well, these are the weapons that bring down Satan's strongholds in this community, in our church, in our lives. Help us learn from Paul just to be so in love with you and so filled with you that just just comes naturally. Thank you for this witness, this testimony. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Good to have you tonight. And I think we even have some fellowship time with some ice cream bars. The kitchen's open. So hang around for a while. Thanks again for coming.